We're on the uh, section for Chitanupasana, contemplation of the mind. In each case, the task of sati, mindfulness, is to know a particular mental quality or its opposite, so that contemplation of the mind actually covers 16 states of mind, as listed in this sutta. The same set of 16 states appears elsewhere in the discourses in relation to the telepathic abilities. Thus, from the perspective of the discourses, this set forms a representative list of states of mind that is relevant both to personal introspection and to assessing another's mind. So, uh, and these 16, uh, they are representative, but they're not uh, exhaustive. It means it's like it's not the entire list of states of mind possible, but sort of representing the mundane or ordinary states of mind and, and more refined states of mind. These 16 states of mind, or eight categories, can be subdivided into two sets. The first set contrasts unwholesome with wholesome states of mind, while the second set is concerned with the presence or absence of higher states of mind. I will examine these different states of mind individually, following an introductory assessment of contemplation of the mind in general. Then he has one of his helpful little diagrams, lists. So in the ordinary states of mind, uh, you have the, the list um, there is the mind that is lustful, saraga, or free from lust, the mind that is angry, sadosa, or free of anger, the mind that is deluded, samoha, or free from delusion, and the mind that is distracted, uh, fikita, or contracted, which is sanghita, if I remember correctly. Sanghita. And then the higher states of mind, uh, the mind which is great, mahagata, or the mind which is not so great, the mind which is uh, surpassable or unsurpassable, anuttara, the mind which is concentrated, samahita, or unconcentrated, and the mind which is liberated, vimutta, or the mind which is uh, not yet liberated. So those are the eight categories, uh, uh, so the, the 16 categories that are derived from those uh, eight bases. Underlying this satipatthana is an implicit shift in emphasis from the ordinary way of experiencing mind as an individual entity to considering mental events as mere objects analyzed in terms of their qualitative characteristics. So instead of saying I'm angry or I'm not angry or I'm concentrated or I'm scattered, um, which is our customary way of, of speaking and thinking about things, uh, it's shifting that from a non-personal perspective, from a personal perspective to a non-personal one. So here is the mind that is free of anger, here is the mind that is experiencing anger. Here is the mind that is uh, distracted. Here is the mind that is free from distraction and so forth. So it's going from a, 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 like a personal self-centered perspective to a nature-centered uh, perspective. As he says, mere objects. And uh, <coughs> the, um, the, uh, the word object is interesting in itself, comes from the Latin uh, the ject comes from um, from the word to throw, and ob means against. Or, or um, so it's like uh, an object is something that is uh, 
thrown against. So it's like the mind throws itself against that something out there. That's the kind of mental image that comes from the word object. Yeah, something that is your your uh, the attention is thrown at that, sort of as it were, out there. <coughs> Contemplation of the mind also includes, in accordance with the Satipatthana refrain, awareness of the arising and passing away of the states of mind being contemplated, thereby revealing the momentary character of all mental events. In addition, sustained contemplation of the mind will also expose the degree to which what one takes to be one's own mind is in fact influenced by <coughs> external conditions. In this way, realizing the impermanent and conditioned nature of the mind accords with the general thrust of Satipatthana towards detachment and non-identification. So, just in ordinary uh, uh, language, that's to say, oh, here's the mind that is agitated, or here's the mind which is calm, here's the mind which is uh, concentrated, or the mind which is unconcentrated, here's the mind which is deluded or undeluded. And so it's not saying well, this is coming from some past um, habit of mind, it's not, it might be, it's not necessarily coming from contact with the, the world around, it's coming from you know, various different causes. At that, uh, this time it's not particularly uh, of any concern where it's coming from, whether it's come from some mental habit or some uh, experience of the, that happened earlier in the day, or whether it's coming because of the weather or the noise in the room, or the traffic on the uh, the M25. Yesterday, I had to go to to Birmingham. Uh, it's Andreas, my trusty driver. There you are. We had many adventures on the road and came across um, floods and uh, obstructions of various kinds. So it was uh, an adventure <laughs> to go to a Sangha meeting up there in the monastery in Birmingham. Um, so the, this particular contemplation is like it's not whether there's a, the road is is covered in water or that the, the the roadworks, uh, the GPS is having a freak out because of the roadworks that don't exist in its little universe. Um, but rather, oh, you know, the, uh, it's not a matter of where it's coming from, whether it should or shouldn't be there, whether it's wholesome or unwholesome even, but rather, oh, there is this uh, experience of, of uh, going forward. Here's the experience of no longer going forward. Here's the experience of going backwards. <laughs> uh, here's the experience of being on time. Here's the experience of being late. And so... Uh, uh, and he goes into this in a, uh, a little bit more. What's really important in terms of Chitanupasana is there's no value judgment. You're not judging whether the mind is contracted or is expansive, whether the mind is, ag uh, is angry or, or is free from anger, the mind is deluded or free from delusion. In, in Chitanupasana, there's no value judgment of wholesome or unwholesome, uh, or, or even the, particularly the... the, uh, the the precise causality of where something has come from, whether it's coming from inside or outside or where it's coming from, it's a, a very sort of clear and immediate direct sense of, at this moment, there is this. It feels this way. This is the distracted mind. It feels like this. Here is the concentrated mind. It feels like this. You know, here is the mind uh, uh, with uh, experiencing anger. It feels like this. Here's the mind free uh, of anger or free of, of distraction. It feels like this. So that this particular approach to mindfulness or development of mindfulness is, it's a, uh, it's very um, clear and uh, and immediate in that respect. So that that's a, an important quality. It's not saying that um, ethics, you know, the, the the moral side of things and what's wholesome and unwholesome doesn't have any relevance in the whole mixture. But in terms of developing the, this 
Satipatthana, that's sort of put aside for the for the for the uh, the time being, and just say, okay, whether it's right or wrong, should be here, shouldn't be here, and whether it's come from inside or outside, wherever it's come from, let's uh, not be concerned with that for the moment. But right now, there is this. This is the the the, the present uh, felt experience has this particular texture, this quality, and uh, this nature, um, and then. That uh, that appreciation that um, um, the the appre- what they call apprehending or the receiving or in the uh, as the Buddha puts it in the Dhammachaka Sutta the Parinyayanti it is to be apprehended to be received to be to be known it's that particular apprehending or receiving of knowing of of the quality then that um, it, it, as I say connects with the quality of wisdom and uh, their attunement to to dhamma and then that guides their recognition of something being wholesome or unwholesome and guides action or speech from that but the initial uh, say apprehending or receiving is is a uh, free of value judgment is free from judgment as wholesome or unwholesome or, or uh, any particular causes so that that um, experience is known in as unbiased uh, and uh, an open a way as possible So then the next section is called Non-Reactive Awareness of One's State of Mind. So he then goes into speaking more about this. It is noteworthy that contemplation of the mind, Chitanupasana, does not involve active measures to oppose unwholesome states of mind, such as lust or anger. Rather, the task of mindfulness is to remain receptively aware by clearly recognizing the state of mind that underlies a particular train of thoughts or reactions. Such uninvolved receptivity, which I think is a very good term, uninvolved receptivity is required because of one's instinctive tendency to ignore whatever contradicts or threatens one's sense of importance and personal integrity. The habit of employing self-deception to maintain one's self-esteem has often become so ingrained that the first step to develop accurate self-awareness is honest acknowledgement of the existence of hidden emotions, motives, and tendencies in the mind without immediately suppressing them. Like, well, I'm, I'm a good person, therefore this can't be real. This, 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 this isn't actually anger. Or like, oh, I'm, a, I'm a calm, I'm, I'm a Buddhist, so I don't experience sort of greed or lust, so this can't be just... <coughs> Ordinary sort of bog standard lust or, or uh, uh, selfishness. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm a practicing Buddhist, so that I don't experience these things. So that's the, what he's uh, uh, pointing to here. I feel this is a very skillfully phrased. The habit of employing self-deception to maintain one's self-esteem has often become so ingrained that the first step to develop developing accurate self-awareness is honest acknowledgement of the existence of hidden emotions, motives, and tendencies in the mind without immediately suppressing them. If any of you ever saw the film Nixon, which um, <clears throat> there, there's a particular um, moment in the film where um, he has the tape recordings of his uh, foul language played back to him, and he just sort of looks straight at the camera and says, well, Nixon doesn't speak like that. Uh, that, that's not that's not me because Nixon doesn't talk that way, 
Anthony Hopkins is playing him in that, that movie, but it's and he's a very good actor. So, but that's a uh, a um, a very good expression of that. If, if those of you who saw that film, I saw it on some plane flight years ago. That will no Nixon doesn't talk like that. <laughs> wasn't me. I don't know who it was. Wasn't me. You know, jam all over our fingers. You know, chocolate all over our <laughs> all over our mouth. <laughs> There was a, uh, and so that um, <coughs> uh, that can be very embarrassing. That there was one, uh, one uh, um, uh, literally the, the Anna Garica in the pantry at Chithurst found in the middle of the night. A monk who went down to uh, who was uh, who was ill went down to to boil a kettle of water to make a, to make himself some herb tea or something. And there in, there in the pantry was chocolate covered Anna Garica. <laughs> But that, that particular Anagarika was a real ardent Pali scholar and very sort of serious, ardent uh, Dharma practitioner straight out of high school into the monastery, you know, one-pointed on Nibbana. And it's like, you're not seeing this, Ajahn. This doesn't really exist. You know, there's like nothing to say. Here I am, uh, Anagarika with chocolate all over my face and my hands. This can't be happening because I'm not that person that you're seeing. I'm somebody else, really, honestly. This is not chocolate that you're seeing, Ajahn. But of course it was. <laughs> so that, I think, is very um, uh, very well phrased. And um, as he goes on to say, maintaining non-reactive awareness in this way counters the impulse towards either reaction or suppression contained in unwholesome states of mind and thereby deactivates their emotional and attentional pull. So because of wanting to, to see ourselves in a particular way or wanting to, um, to maintain a particular self-image or um, not wanting to think, uh, uh, to recognize that we have certain sort of angry or lustful or selfish or uh, aggressive thoughts. Now, I'm a Buddhist. I can't, you know, I shouldn't be thinking that. Or I, I can't be thinking that because I don't think those things, like Richard Nixon. Uh, but to, to be... Um, Say using this practice to acknowledge this and to work with that. There's a, a, a particular talk of uh, Longpo Sumedho's that's a, a chapter in his book uh, Mindfulness Path to the Deathless. It's called Listening to Thought. It's a, a very, very useful exposition on this. It's in volume two of the uh, Longpo Sumedho's Collected Teachings. Um, pages, I made a note of it, 41 to 45. It's called Listening to Thought. And it's uh, you, uh, in a way, it's developing chitanupassana as an active practice. And so, one of the things he he recommends in that teaching is to think the unthinkable, like, right, uh, you know, I don't care about nibbana. I want chocolate. You know, the thinking the unthinkable. It's like, when's he going to shut up? I want to. Uh, you know, I want to, to my knees to be comfortable. You know, all right. She, if she died, I would be happy. You know, that's the kind of things you're not supposed to think if you're a Buddhist. You know, that, uh, and so um, when you are able to recognize those impulses like, and to, that are selfish, greedy, aggressive, etc., etc., jealous, fearful, and to, um, to in a way say them out loud to yourself rather than out loud in the, <laughs> in the meditation hall, in the temple, those are inside words rather than outside words, you know, as a... Uh, uh, to uh, to be able to say, you know, if she was dead, I would be happy. 
And then you real, when you when you do that, or you say, if 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 only everyone would love me, everything would be fine. Or whatever it might be, your own particular um, impulse, that you can very rarely get to the end of the sentence without it sounding ridiculous. You know that when you actually and that's why Lumpur Sumedha would encourage it. It's like when you think the unthinkable. Like rather than fearing that, that oh, I, I shouldn't be thinking now, that's really awful, or, or trying to push it away, as he, as he describes here, um, that uh, you're, you're, in a sense, you're acknowledging, well, that's just a fear impulse, well, that's just a, a conceit impulse, well, that's just a, an aversion impulse, that's all. And by thinking that through, if I didn't have to bother, if only I wasn't married to this idiot, I would be happy. Or if only I could join the monastery, then everything would be fine. If only I could leave the monastery, everything would be fine. <laughs> that uh, you and my experience of it, with with working with this kind of reflection is it, it, it's very simple but extraordinarily potent. And uh, as as Lumpur Sumedha would describe it, thinking the unthinkable. And uh, you know it can take shape in all sorts of different ways. Um, Joseph Goldstein talks about uh, he was on a, a I think a, like a month long. Uh, retreat, uh, and he was really struggling, having a very difficult time. This was when he was like a retreat teacher. <laughs> he's the sort of he's the Ajahn, <laughs> but having a a a very very uh, difficult testing time. And then uh, these um, jet planes flew over the the retreat center, IMS Insight Meditation Society, and then he had the thought, oh, maybe those are carrying nuclear weapons to start a war with Russia. Oh, that that would be great. That would give me an excuse to stop the retreat. <laughs> no, and he said, "Hang on a minute, Joseph. You're looking forward to nuclear war just so that you'll have an excuse to to get out of this retreat. That's crazy." <laughs> but the, he had the wisdom to recognize it. Uh, I, uh, I I would prefer to have nuclear war and mass destruction than to have to live with this retreat. That's what this impulse is, is saying. Please let there be nuclear war. It will give me a good excuse. So you, you say that, sort of, in a way, out loud to yourself, and you realize, that's crazy. <laughs> that's not a, that's not a, 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 a thought to, to be believed in. But also what happens is that the, the, the solidity or the validity of those thoughts, so they fall away on their own. It's not like, oh, I shouldn't think that. Um, stop it! Stop it! Stop it! That's bad. You know, I'm a, I'm a good Buddhist. I shouldn't, I shouldn't have those jealous or fearful or aggressive impulses. But when you 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 uh, give a voice to that and think those things through, you know, clearly and consciously, then then they that they lose their power on their own. Their their value, their validity falls away. So so whatever it might be that your mind sort of takes shape around, like. I want to be like you. If I was like you, then everything would be great. Or <laughs> why do you get all the goodies and, and not me? Or I'm more important than you are. <laughs> that uh, when uh, when you give that voice and sort of see it, uh, see it and know it clearly, then it it uh, its its value, its strength, its meaning just sort of falls away by itself. So you you know from your own faculty of wisdom, it's ridiculous. So it's not your thinking mind is saying, this is ridiculous, stop hanging on to it, but rather you just find yourself laughing at it and uh, it, it, uh, its absurdity is, um, uh, is, is, of, uh, is apparent on its own.
The Vitaka Santana Sutta, which is Sutta number 20 in the Majjhima Nikaya, Middle Length Discourses, offers a description of such deactivation. In order to come to grips with the repeated occurrence of unwholesome thoughts, attention turns to the nature of these thoughts and to the volitional disposition or driving force that produced them. The discourse explains this simple but ingenious method of turning the full light of attention on the mental condition underlying one's thoughts with the help of a simile. One is walking quite fast for no particular reason. Becoming fully aware of what one is doing, one might walk, one might walk slower or even stand still. Or instead of standing, one might sit or lie down. This progressive increase in physical comfort and tranquility vividly illustrates how the mental agitation and tension of unwholesome thought processes can be gradually reduced and overcome through direct observation. And in the sutta it, uh, itself, it's, uh, it goes through five different methods of calming distracted thoughts. I mean, that's the literal meaning of Vitaka Santana, is the, the stilling of distracted thoughts, or the m removal of distracting thoughts. So it, um, the, the progress of that, uh, of, that pro uh, of that thought process is, just as a man walking fast might consider, why am I walking fast? What if I walk slowly? And he'd walk slowly. Then he might consider, why am I walking slowly? What if I stand? And he would stand. Then he might consider, why am I standing? What if I sit? And he would sit. Then he might consider, why am I sitting? What if I lie down? And he would lie down. By doing so, he would substitute for each grosser posture one that was subtler. Also that sense of, of calming and withdrawing the kind of uh, energetic uh, impulse behind a particular set of, of thought processes. The other um, images that he gives uh, is that the first method of removing distracted thought, distracted thought is to, like a, a, um, a carpenter would take a, a, a small peg to knock out a, a large peg from a, a hole. Um, so that taking a, 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 a wholesome thought, you're knocking, knocking out a, a, an unwholesome thought to just consciously replace it. Um, the second one is... Um, to, re uh, to recognize the unattractive and unwholesome, dangerous nature of the thoughts, to sort of recognize the, the, um, the kind of unpleasant results of following those, those particular thoughts. Okay, well, if, if, I th if I have this thought, well, if you were dead, I would be happy. Like, okay, well, if you carried that out, what, you know, what would that bring with it? Yeah. And he uses the image of um, just as a, a young man or woman, young, youthful, and fond of ornaments, would be horrified, humiliated, and disgusted if the carcass of a snake or a dog or a human being were hung around their neck, so that if that was you had a, a sort of a dead body of an animal hanging around your neck, sort of rotting and, and uh, being smell uh, filling your, your nostrils all the time, then it's like hanging on to a, an unskillful thought. And the third one is that one about uh, slowing down. Uh, the fourth one um, is uh, turning the sorry the, the third one is uh, turning the attention away, just uh, adverting your attention. Like saying, well, if I put my attention on that, then it causes me to get angry or afraid or upset. Okay, what if I just turn my attention away? So it's just adverting your, um, your attention. 
uh, from uh, from something. And then the the fifth one is uh, is much more aggressive. And he says, um, if while giving attention to the stilling of thought the, of the thought formation, there still arise in him unwholesome thoughts connected with greed, hatred, delusion. Then with his teeth clenched and his tongue pressed against the roof of his mouth, he should beat down, constrain and crush mind with mind. Just as a strong man might seize a weaker man by the head or shoulders and beat him down, constrain him and crush him, so too, uh, with teeth clenched and tongue pressed against the roof of the mouth, a bhikkhu beats down, constrains and crushes mind with mind. And uh, Venerable Analio goes into this, the uh, best way of understanding that, or the skillful way of relating to that. In a, in a moment. So, any particular questions or reflections on that, what I've said so far? Okay. Yes. Oh, so. Yeah, well, I wasn't sure whether I should pull back on that. <laughs> <laughs> um, might as well. Is the. Are there any thoughts on the actual mechanism as to why, um, if you if you look at it, the the thought process ceases and goes away? Um, is it is there any any explanations why that is? Um, or how that is? Um, yes, yeah, it's, it's a good question. It's my experience of it is that what you're doing is that you're engaging your own wisdom faculty, that, that thought has power when we believe in its contents. And when it's not seen clearly, we believe it very easily. Uh, when you, when you, uh, you pay close attention, it's like if you, you're seeing an advert in, a, in a, a magazine or a, on a TV or in a film or something, then you're <clears throat> it's, if you're not really paying attention, then it has a powerful effect. If you stop and consider, oh, well, they've, they've set that up in a studio, and that's an actor, and they've, they've got all the, the, they chose the lighting, and they've chosen that slogan to get people interested in that particular camera or car or whatever it is. Once you sort of see how it's put together, it's like, well, they're trying to create a certain effect with the, the, the object and the lighting and the angle and the, the slogan to, to get my attention. Oh, that, that's how it's put together. It's just an advert that's designed to catch my attention. If you're just flipping through and you're not looking at it in that way, then oh, that's interesting. Oh, they got a new. Uh, got, that's the latest version. Oh, that's nice. So it's that, in a way, the natural effect of engaging the wisdom faculty, and that the more that that uh, wisdom is brought to that process, then the the more that the sort of the illusion of the sort of the conjuring trick is seen through. So it's it's talked about in those those kind of terms um, it, in various ways, but like a, a seeing how the trick is performed is uh, you know how the how the, the conjurer does their their makes their il- illusion, then it, it it can't fool you in the same way. It's just it, you're not uh, you're not tricked by it because you know how it's done. So I don't, that and that's the, the the sort of common understanding. It's like if if something is, if it's like if if it's not seen clearly, you sort of, there's this kind of movement of the the edges of your vision. You know, oh, what's that? I don't know. There's something happening out there. Or if the lights are dim, it's like oh, what, you know, is that is that somebody there? Is that well, who, you know, who's that? And then when the lights are on, 
and things are bright and clear and you can say, oh, it's just my hands, it's, it's just my fingers moving, that's all, it's nothing. But when things are unclear or peripheral, uh, things are dim, then the, um, the, um, the whole imaginative process works more clearly. It's also why they, um, and we're, uh, we, um, we, we like um, sort of, we, we li- uh, part of us likes that kind of dimness and the um, being able to dwell in our illusions. That's why bars have dim lights. And places like McDonald's, uh, they have bright lights because they want you to go through quickly, they don't want you to linger. But restaurants and bars where they want you to stay a long time and drink lots of, of, of wine and such like, then they keep the lights down so you can keep the illusion going longer. But if the fast food places, they have the lights very bright and the, the seat's quite hard, so you don't want to stick around a long time so that people come along, oh, there's lots of, there's lots of spaces. We, <laughs> we can uh, stop, we, we can uh, go through, uh, people are encouraged to go through quickly. Yes. Um, does he ever go as far as um, recommending sort of dialogue in your thoughts if it was an internal other, um, translating it to you know, Jungian approaches where you do active imagination, where it helps you do something different by actually saying, there's an other here, and I can dialogue, who are you, what do you want? The, you can, there, there's a, um, a Tibetan practice called feeding the demons, which is very Jungian in its mm-hmm. approach like that. And you ask the demon what it wants. So there isn't so much. You don't really get that in the in the Pali at all. But it's a, it's a very um, very much a, 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 a well known practice in the Tibetan tradition. So if like if it's a demon of fear or anger, then you you visualize the anger demon or the fear demon, or the lust demon or the the um, selfishness demon, and you and you say what would, what can I give you? What what do you want? So it's like a, it's a visualization practice, and then, like with those kind of uh, Jungian or, or therapeutic methods, you can be quite surprised what the demon wants, <laughs> or what it turns into, or when, when or when you give the demon what it's asking for. It's like, no, I don't want that at all. <laughs> I think uh, I was for the past while. I was thinking I wanted to marry a nun and go and live in a teepee and feed and have babies. Well, now I just realised I think the demon wanted to eat the babies. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's often like uh, it's very revealing when you you sort of just ask that in a way that uh, what what is it that you want? What, what is it that you, that, that, that you think you're going to get from this? And it's it's often surprising. So I have I've done a certain amount of that myself. But um, there's a uh, an American uh, uh, teacher in the Tibetan tradition, Sultram Alioni, who um, she, she's written a couple of books you know, speaking about that kind of that particular practice. So and I've I've heard her give talks on that, which is illuminating. She was one of the first people to be a, a nun in the uh, Kagyu tradition back in the sixties. Such mindful observation without involvement is illustrated in a simile in the discourses in which the Buddha compared awareness of one's states of mind with the use of a mirror to see one's reflection. And that is, um, if you want the reference, that's in the Anguttara Nikaya, 
connect uh, the um, numerical discourses Book of the Tens, Sutta number 51, and it's also in the Sutta number 15 in the Majima, uh, Majima Nikaya. <coughs> Just as a mirror simply reflects whatever is presented to it, meditators should try to maintain bare awareness of the present condition of their mind without allowing reactions to arise. So just like a mirror doesn't say, oh, that's interesting, or oh, no, take that away. You know, the mirror just reflects in a completely impartial and uh, an open uh, way. It doesn't have preferences or biases. It just reflects. So it's, it's uh, uh, that same kind of impartiality is um, what this kind of practice is relating to. Then he goes on to this beating down uh, passage. However, the same Vitaka Santana Sutta speaks also of, quote, beating down and crushing mind with mind, unquote, as an alternative approach in order to deal with unwholesome thoughts. This appears to disagree with the aforementioned. Very good point. <laughs> once, uh, but once this instruction is considered in its context, it becomes clear that it comes only as a last resort after all other alternative approaches, including the above-discussed deactivation, like calming things down or, or, or just uh, <coughs> reflecting on the unwholesome qualities of, of a particular pattern of thought. Um, when they, those uh, uh, other approaches have proved ineffective. Thus, to beat down and crush mind with mind is an emergency measure when all else has failed. When the situation is about to get out of hand, the use of force will at least prevent the obsessive negative thoughts from spilling over into unwholesome activity. So, quote, to beat down and crush mind with mind, unquote, is in fact on another occasion counted by the Buddha among the fruitless exercises which he himself had tried and discarded prior to his awakening. This goes to show that the use of mere force is not intended for mental development in general, but in cases of emergency only. So just as um, in terms of, say, parenting, looking after children, you would encourage a non-violent relationship with a parent to the child. But if the, the kid is just running off, their ball is just rolled off the pavement out into the road, and that the, you know, your little two-year-old is chasing after their colored ball, then you don't hesitate to grab the kid's shirt and say, no, because you know, there's a car coming. And so to save the child's life, you, you would grab it by the shirt and, and yank it out of the, out of the way of a of an oncoming vehicle, so it's exactly that kind of um, approach. Also, uh, it's in, in this um, respect, uh, Lumpur Sumedho would uh, <coughs> uh, encourage a uh, just a uh, an internal voicing of that by, as he would say, just say no. Like when the when the mind starts to go down some particular track that you know is uh, unskillful and nothing else seems to work. He would say, just say no. <laughs> like, or like uh, I grew up with a lot of dogs, a house full of dogs. So when you're training a dog, sometimes, no, drop, drop. Good dog, good dog. <laughs> so sometimes we just have to relate to our, our mind in the same way. Another, um, another method that I would use is, is to, to visualize closing a door, just that, uh, like a, a cupboard door or a door to, the, to another room, just. <clears throat> rather than even sort of shouting no or saying no in an aggressive way, just say, the door is closed. <laughs> and that it can, it can, those kind of things can be surprisingly effective. So uh, it's, this is a sort of area to 
explore and to experiment in and see what actually does help the mind to um, uh, to uh, let go when there are those sort of compulsive um, uh, um, say reactions going on. And sometimes it's not just with, with uh, say, uh, particularly uh, destructive or unwholesome states sort of, uh, like greed or hatred, um, fear and so on, but it can also be that um, uh, having positive thoughts, we might also be very averse to having positive thoughts about ourselves or, <laughs> or receiving uh, uh, approval or kindness from others. Sometimes uh, criticism is more welcome uh, uh, and that we're more comfortable with being criticized or being a failure or being wrong than we are being uh, being liked or, or being uh, uh, appreciated and, and others expressing gratitude for us. So sometimes that... Um, this kind of uh, of thinking things through uh, and or, or making a statement um, can uh, uh, it can be um, so, you know going against those sort of habitual self-critical or fearful or um, you know those uh, those kind of states of mind as well. So the next uh, part is it goes on to the four ordinary states of mind. Chitta, the Pali term used in this Satipatthana, usually refers in the discourses to mind, in the conative and emotional sense, in the sense of one's mood or state of mind. The first three among the states of mind listed in this Satipatthana instruction are lust, raga, anger, dosa, and delusion, moha, the three main roots of all unwholesome mental events. The basic principle underlying the contemplation of these three unwholesome roots, which also underlies the distinction between worldly and unworldly feelings in the previous Satipatthana, is the clear distinction between what is wholesome and what is unwholesome. So here is the mind, this is the mind filled with lust or filled with anger, filled with delusion. Here is the mind free of lust, free of anger, free of delusion. Systematic development of this ability nurtures an intuitive ethical sensitivity which constitutes an important asset in one's progress on the path and a reliable guide to proper conduct in one's daily life. So simply that recognition of, oh, this is the mind filled with anger, as it was saying that it sort of touches your own uh, quality of, of wisdom, and says, okay, this is, this is anger, this is uh, delusion, this is, this is uh, lustfulness. Um, and then the very, uh, say, conscious receiving of that that then connects to your uh, wisdom faculty, the the, uh, uh, the capacity of uh, the heart to attune to to dhamma and see the way things are, and so then that informs uh, our what what we uh, what we uh, say or, or do, and so that then having seen well this is really unwholesome, this is unskillful, that it inspires restraint, or this is wholesome, this is noble, then inspires engaging with that. The Satipatthana Sutta presents each of these roots, greed, hatred, and delusion, together with their opposite, with its opposite, the absence of lust, anger, or delusion. This way of presentation is common in canonical usage, allowing the negative term to cover not only the opposite notion, but also to imply a wider range of meaning. Thus, to be, quote, without anger, unquote, for example, 
could refer simply to a state of mind free from irritation, but also to a mind overflowing with loving-kindness. So sometimes you get the expression like non-ill will um, as a, a way of, of, exp of meaning kindness, or, or non-cruelty as in compassion. So that, uh, that's quite a common usage in the Pali Canon. That uh, It seems like a, sort of just a, an absence or a negative thing, but it can also uh, very actively imply the, the, the positive, uh, kind of noble emotional quality as well. During meditation, each of these three unwholesome roots can manifest in a distinctive manner. The fever of lust may be compared to being on fire within, the physical tension of anger to being overpowered and controlled by a forceful opponent, and the confusion of delusion uh, to being hopelessly entangled in a net. And so that, uh, uh, as he uh, points out the, in the Dhammapada, verse number 251, it poetically points out that there is no fire like lust, no grip like anger, and no net like delusion. Ajahn Buddhadasa suggests distinguishing between mental tendencies such as pulling in and pushing away and running around in circles in order to recognize the three unwholesome roots. So Raga wants to pull in, uh, Dosa wants to push away, and then Moha wants to run around in circles. <laughs> I think we're all familiar with... Uh, we probably have our own specialities, but we're probably familiar with all three. Taken in an absolute sense, a mind without lust, anger and delusion is the mind of an arahant. It's one of the ways of defining a full enlightenment. This way of understanding is, in fact, the most frequent usage of the qualification without lust, without anger, without delusion in the discourses. Thus, contemplation of the mind appears to be not only concerned with momentary states of mind, but also with the overall condition of the mind, so like in a sort of long-term and more deeply rooted uh, way. Understood in this way, to contemplate the mind unaffected by lust, anger or delusion would include awareness of the degree to which these three unwholesome roots are no, are no longer rooted in one's mental continuum, so like the degree to which the mind doesn't move in those uh, directions. So, as it were, the, the degree of, of liberation that uh, uh, an individual has has realized. The two states of mind listed next for contemplation, contracted, sankita, and distracted, vikita, both appear to have negative implications. The same two terms occur elsewhere in the discourses, with inward contraction being the result of sloth and torpor, dullness, and external distraction being the outcome of pursuing sensual pleasures. The commentaries on the Satipatthana Sutta indeed relate the contracted state of mind to sloth and torpor, while according to them the distracted state of mind represents restlessness. But uh, they, uh, uh, he also has a note on this, saying, alternatively, in order to conform with the pattern in this Satipatthana, so of representing a positive state of mind together with its negative counterpart, so like the mind filled with lust or free from lust, the mind filled with anger, free from anger, so positive and negative are in pairs. Um, the contracted state of mind could be taken in a positive sense as a concentrated or attentive state of mind, which is, um, uh, so the interpretation of, um, uh, in the Pali uh, Tech Society Dictionary the, by uh, Professor Rhys Davids, 
The corresponding verb, san, uh, sankipati, does indeed occur in this positive sense in the Jatakas, when the Buddha radiates loving-kindness to his five earlier followers on their first meeting after his awakening. So, in this respect, Sankhita can be translated as collected, and then, uh, uh, or concentrated, and then Vikita will be distracted or, or dispersed. So that, that that would mean that it, it, ma it matches the other three members of that same group of having a positive one and a negative one. So that, that does make a bit more sense to me. The ability uh, to balance the mind by avoiding both contraction and distraction is an important skill required for the development of deeper levels of concentration or insight. The placing of these two states of mind at this point in the instructions, so after like greed, hatred, delusion, then you have contracted and distracted is the, the fourth one in that list. So the placing of these two states of mind at this point in the instructions for contemplation of the mind indicates the need to cultivate such balance between contraction and distraction. Once one has at least temporarily moved beyond the reach of the grosser types of mental unwholesomeness and is aiming towards the development of higher states of mind, such as I described in the remainder of this Satipatthana. So he's saying after dealing with greed, hatred and delusion, then um, knowing uh, the mind being contracted or distracted, so inclining towards dullness or, or incline, uh, inclining towards agitation, then it, it makes sense in, in that respect. So then we go on to the four higher states of mind. The next qualification, great or mahagata, occurs in other discourses, often in the context of calmness meditation. For instance, when describing the meditative practice of radiating the four divine abodes, the Brahma Vihara, in all directions. So, um, abundant, exalted, immeasurable mahagata, we say, you know, uh, um, uh, is a sort of made great is is also another way of, of translating that. Similarly, in the Anuruddha Sutta, great represents the ability to pervade a broad area with one's meditation object. In that case, in this case, apparently, as a result of kasina meditation, like meditating on a particular uh, form, visual form. These instances support the commentarial explanation of this part of the Satipatthana instructions according to which a great state of mind, Mahagata, is related to the development of absorption. So this, um, the four you have in this, um, uh, in this section, uh, the mind uh, that is um, made great or the mind which is not great, the mind which is surpassable or and the mind which is unsurpassable, the mind which is concentrated and unconcentrated, and the mind which is liberated and unliberated. That's what these um, four quote-unquote, higher states of mind are, are referring to. The same commentaries relate the next category mentioned for contemplation, the surpassable, sa-uttara, the, the surpassable state of mind to the development of concentration. Surpassable then indicates the need to clearly recognize the constituents of a particular level of absorption to be left behind in order to proceed to a higher level of absorption. So to say, this is, oh, I'm only at access concentration, this is surpassable, you can, you can get more concentrated than this, you can be more focused than this. So it's surpassable, and then um, unsurpassable would be like, okay, this is as concentrated as it, as it can be. 
This finds support in the Seika Sutta, which refers to the fourth absorption as a state of unsurpassable, quote-unquote, equanimity and mindfulness. On the other hand, in the discourses, the qualification unsurpassable frequently recurs in relation to full awakening. Understood in this way, the present category also includes the reviewing knowledge after realization, when one investigates the degree to which the mind has been freed from fetters and mental defilements. So that's making a distinction between unsurpassable in terms of concentration, so which isn't necessarily um, so liberated and, uh, and enlightened, so unsurpassable in terms of, okay, this is fourth jhana, you can't get more concentrated than this. Or uh, sometimes it's used in terms of, oh, this is, uh, this is full awakening, this is arahantship, there's no insight that is more uh, comprehensive than this. So the, the same term, surpassable, can be used both in terms of concentration and in terms of insight, in terms of um, so samatha and vipassana, if you like. The next term in the series the concentrated samahita state of mind is self-explanatory. According to the commentaries, this expression includes access concentration and full absorption. Since, the discourse, since in the discourses, samadhi refers to concentration in the context of the development of both calm and insight, the expression concentrated mind has a fairly broad range of reference. Then he goes on to the next one, liberated. The qualification liberated, vimutta, frequently occurs in the discourses in relation to full awakening. Understood in this way, the liberated, quote-unquote, mind parallels the more frequent usage of the expression unsurpassable mind, and also the mind that is forever without lust, without anger, and without delusion. All these referring to the mind of Narahant. The commentaries, moreover, relate the qualification liberated to temporary freedom from defilements during insight meditation. So there can be temporary liberations and, and, and permanent liberations. So there's a, a particular sutta to Godika where he describes his experience of the mind um, being liberated, then, uh, then falling away from liberation, and liberated again, and falling away from liberation, backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards <coughs> a, a number of times. So that in that respect, that liberation would be you know, obviously reversible or, or not complete. It's just like a, to, um, a, a, a temporary uh, uh, state of, of freedom that's being experienced. Elsewhere in the discourses, the qualification of being liberated occurs also in relation to the development of concentration as a freedom of the mind. That's right, it is with uh, uh, what's called Cheto Vimuti. Thus the expression liberated mind can be taken to refer to experiences of mental freedom in relation to both calm and insight. So exactly, so in a way the same as with surpassable and unsurpassable, it can refer both to concentration and to, and to wisdom. The theme underlying the contemplation of these four higher states of mind is the ability to monitor the more advanced stages of one's meditative development. In this way, Within the scope of co contemplation of the mind, sati, mindfulness, can range from recognition of the presence of lust or anger to the awareness of the most lofty and sublime types of mental experience, each time with the same basic task of calmly noticing what is taking place. 
so that these uh, the, the second um, group, um, the you know, whether surpassable or unsurpassable, uh, concentrated, unconcentrated, liberated, or unliberated, it's sort of generally talking about a, a more refined area. But I feel also they can be um, used to to refer to and to to keep uh, uh, the attention on uh, on things when the mind is in a more coarse state. So that if you you find the mind is um, is attached to something, you're attached to the pain in your knee, or you're attached to the uh, the uh, the feeling of waiting for the bell to, to ring, or you're attached to uh, uh, the feeling of a, um, anticipating what food's going to be on the servery in the morning. And to be able to reflect, this is the unliberated mind. This is the mind. This is not the state of liberation. <laughs> this is this is a state of clinging. So it doesn't have to be referring to the uh, uh, two refined states, but it's like this is this is the uh, unliberated mind. Or similarly, uh, uh, you know, the with the other ones, this is the um, this state of mind is surpassable. You know, that you're dull and sleepy and feeling lazy. Yeah, this this can be surpassed. So it's not just, I would say, uh, solely referring to the refined states of mind, but in a way, it's sort of it's uh, specialising in that, or, or, or it's uh, emphasising that. But it, they can be used more broadly in, in my way of understanding it. So then, to finish with this last um, bit of the chapter, the emphasis given in this Satipatthana to mindful contemplation of deep levels of concentration is noteworthy. Among the Buddha's contemporaries, experiences of absorption often gave rise to speculative views. And he has a, an interesting footnote here, and I think we talked about this before in relationship to the um, Brahmajala Sutta, the first one of the Diganikaya. Of the 62 grounds for views presented in the Brahmajala Sutta, that's the first discourse in the Diganikaya where the Buddha talks about 62 kinds of wrong view, 49 of those wrong views appear to be related to concentrative attainments of various types. Recollection of past lives, the divine eye, um, uh, jhana uh, practices. This ratio, nearly 80%, constitutes an, an overwhelming testimony to the view-generating propensity of deep concentration experiences. So that means that, yeah, you, uh, it might be useful to have powerful experiences of concentration, but that is a major source of attachment and and uh, and views and opinions, so uh, that's a, a very good example of you think well these are wholesome, but it's like having a really fast car that you can get a lot of tickets speeding tickets for, <laughs> you know it's like yes it goes quickly but yes you're going to get into trouble uh, much more easily, and so uh, that's a, a really uh, useful statistic to to bear in mind that uh, eighty percent of the um, uh, of the wrong views the, the, the Buddha lists are, are because of people's skillful and, and, and powerful meditation experiences. So, take careful note. In fact, the jhanic experiences can easily lead to formation of wrong views is also noted by some, a scholar called Vijay Bandra. It's also personal experience. Often the, the people who, have, who are the, ma the major sort of Jhana practitioners have the strongest views and opinions, in my humble opinion. <laughs> Personal experience, mentioning no names. But, uh, of course, I don't have attachment to views and opinions at all. So, just so that that's recorded. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
The Buddha's distinctive departure from these speculations was his thoroughly analytical treatment of the meditative absorptions aimed at understanding their composite and conditioned nature. So rather than when states, uh, meditative states were experienced, rather than reading into them, uh, this means um, that uh, I understand the, the nature of the universe or that uh, I am the Almighty, I'm the creator of the universe, I'm uh, you know, I am uh, totally enlightened. Uh, the Buddha's analytical treatment of the absorptions aimed at understanding their composite and conditioned nature. This analytical treatment is exemplified in the uh, Atakanagara Sutta, the man from Atakanagara, as it's called, that's Sutta number 52 in the Majjhima Nikaya, which states that one should regard the experience of absorption as merely a product of the mind a conditioned and volitionally produced experience. And so, this is a, one of those very um, important meditation suttas. Let's see. Uh, number 52, the, uh, the man from Atakanagara. And the phraseology goes with each of the states of absorption. Um, it says, this... Uh, This first jhana is conditioned and volitionally produced, but whatever is conditioned and volitionally produced is impermanent, subject to cessation. Standing upon that, he attains the destruction of the taints. So that, and that's applied all the way through the the, the first four jhanas and all the way up to the um, the the first three of the arupa jhanas, the formless jhanas, and. Um, and each one is with a, that, that same reflection. This is this is conditioned and, and volitionally produced. Therefore, it's it's uh, unsatisfactory and impermanent. And then that uh, so they are developing insight uh, and reflect that reflective wisdom all the way along through these very deep states. And, and it's said um, that the those the two highest states of jhana, which are like the uh, the and uh, neither perception nor non-perception, neva sanya na sanya, and then also the cessation of perception and feeling. The, um, the these are uh, the mind is in such a, a state of, of intense concentration. It's impossible to bring that reflective wisdom to bear. So you, you can't you can't bring up the thought. This is a, this is con a condition because the, the mind is too concentrated. It's too refined. But at every uh, every uh, level below that, then that's still uh, still possible, and so that's a, a very significant teaching. It also shows how that reflective wisdom and the development of insight is still uh, uh, can still be active, and is encouraged um, uh, through the alongside the development of, of concentration as well. So that's a Sutta Fifty Two in the Majjhima. Uh, so just to finish this. So, uh, such understanding then leads to the conclusion that whatever is a product of conditions is also impermanent and subject to cessation. Insight into the impermanent nature of deep levels of concentration also forms part of Satipatthana practice. When the instruction in the refrain to contemplate the nature of arising and passing away is applied to the higher states of mind listed for contemplation. As it says, uh, he abides contemplating the nature of arising or passing away, both arising and passing away in regard to the mind. So that's it.
that uh, again there's that development of the anicca sanya, the perception of impermanence. And there's another similar uh, sutta um, to that one from the the sutta 52, the man from Atakanagara, and that's the Malankya Putta Sutta, um, which is uh, Sutta 64. And it's a very has a very similar sense of of reflecting on the uh, selfless and impermanent nature of all different refined mind states to to feed into uh, the quality of, of insight and then liberation. Undertaken in this way, Satipatthana in regard to higher states of mind becomes a practical expression of the Buddha's analytical attitude towards the entire range of mental experience. That's the end of that chapter. <clears throat> well, this is a very, um, uh, say, useful and, and one of the most common areas of teaching. That those of us who've been around Lumpur Sumato's uh, Dhamma teachings for many years will know that he spends a lot of uh, time talking about Jitanupasana, contemplation of, of moods and mind states. And then in particular, I would recommend... Um, that uh, that chapter, listening to thought, if you want to develop this in a, a, a little more sort of colloquial language and, and sort of handy hints, it, that's um, that uh, chapter, listening to thought in path the, path to the deathless. So it's in volume two of his collected teachings. So it's a short chapter, but it expresses that that uh, very very uh, very well. And um, the um, and if you apply, it takes a lot of mindfulness to. To notice the patterns of thinking that, that are there, but if uh, if we are attentive to that and recognize, oh, this is what the, the agitated mind feels like. This, oh, this is, uh, oh, this is the uh, the the mind uh, no longer agitated. Here is the mind that's that's feeling anger. Oh, and then using that kind of way of listening to your thought or repeating the the thoughts to sort of in a way highlight them. That very highlighting. Uh, Bring, uh, and then bringing about a kind of dissolution of them. So it, it's a, a very uh, direct and potent way of, of getting a, a, a perspective on our, our thinking and, and our moods. <clears throat>